um, just today, a woman comes up. I'm, I'm, I'm working on things. I'm, I'm, I'm working a little extra because I'm trying to train folks to do different things. And um, that's always really hard at first. It's always easier just to do it yourself. Anybody who's a parent, ever been a parent, knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's just easier to change that diaper than to sit them every 10 minutes on the body, right? And um, it, it's very difficult. But, but um, you know, a woman comes up, wanders up this morning into the office, and she was somebody who, Elaine, Dean, brought in to her where she was, and we prayed for her. Um, some of the women from the church remember her, Kristen. And I didn't recognize her at first. And she goes on and on, and I wasn't sure what was going on. And, you know, long story short, help her out, get her some meat for the home she's living at. Um, point of the story is, yeah, it's really frantic if we're like doing everything and then someone needs to be ministered to and we don't have the time to minister to them because I got to get the slides ready <laughs> got to set up the church <laughs> you know got to do x y and z so I'm just really thankful for all the ways that people are stepping up like like Kathleen has been a beast in getting all these donations for the fundraiser that we're about to have next month, which we do every year. We try to raise a few thousand bucks to help people just like this woman in need. You understand, like, money doesn't come out of nowhere. And the way that we can have some money to, for me to go down to the Express Mart and get some meat, the only way we can do that is if a bunch of people hustle and get donations and then cook a bunch of pasta and have a big dinner and raise money. You know what I'm trying to say? I, I, I'm thankful for, for Lisa setting up the voicemail, and we're about to have an avalanche of people calling as we launch the Easter outreach, right? Put a number in the local paper and say, if you need a meal this Easter so you can celebrate Jesus, you can gather with your family, like, I can just go on and on and on. All the people who serve, and I'm just really grateful for every one. Amen. So we're, we are in Mark chapter 13 for the sake of time. We're, we're going to read the whole thing. It is one of the, we just heard uh, a chunk of it near the end. But we've got a lot to, of ground to cover in a short period of time with this chapter. It's, it's, it's a difficult chapter. And it's the kind of chapter that reminds you that the Bible is not just like a bag of fortune cookies where you just reach into the bag, break it open, eat it, it's always sweet, and then look at the little paper, and it always just tells you something that makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> That's not the Bible. The Bible is not just a bunch of quotes that are super easy to pop in your Instagram and your Facebook to make you look like a good person. <laughs> And to make you feel better about yourself. The, the Bible is the story of God, which is way bigger than you. 
See, Christianity didn't start the moment you decided to follow Jesus. It goes way beyond you were born. It goes way beyond your parents and your grandparents. It goes throughout all of history. And when we study the Bible, we look backwards through all of history and we look forward to the end and this is a chapter where we're looking forward to the end when Jesus will come back and as we heard this evening right no one knows the hour but the hand is at the door he is ready he is coming and we're going to look at this the story of God is so much bigger than you and it's bigger than what relates directly to your life and yet it always relates to your life. The Bible describes you and I like a blade of grass that's just burned up by the sun. Like God and history and everything don't rotate around you. (laughs) And yet, even as a blade of grass, you feel the heat of the sun and you're given life by the rain. And the word of God always applies. So tonight we need to look in three different directions, three things. We need to talk about how we study the Bible in general. This sermon will be really helpful if you go and listen to it or go and read slowly Mark 13 and then listen to it or listen to it and then read it after, you know. But we're going to talk about just in general, how do we study the Bible? We're going to talk about how we can answer some of the big questions that are in this chapter. Things like, what is the abomination of desolation? What, what is all these, you know, what the fig tree, remember that? Like, what, 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 what is the tribulation, the wars and rumors of war? What do all these things mean? And then finally, we're going to put down our Rubik's Cube, our, our, our puzzle book of trying to figure out what the future holds for us, and listen, Lord willing, to the voice of God and hear what he's calling each and every one of us to do so clearly. So let's start with talking about how we study the Bible in general. We can look at a passage like this, and it can be difficult to know how we come to any clarity. And here's a principle when reading the Bible that I find very helpful. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. I want you to repeat that. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. What God needed you to know in the Word, He made really clear. Like St. Augustine, he was, a, he, he was an African church leader in the 4th century. He said, the, the Word of God is safe enough. It's like the ocean. It's safe enough for children to swim around in joy on the edge of the beach. But it's deep enough like the ocean where elephants can go into the deep waters and swim. But the things that are plain... The things that jump out across culture, the things that jump out to all of us as we read it, those are the main things the Bible wants to teach us. 
the, the Word of God is not mainly a Rubik's Cube that you need to figure out, <laughs> that you need to match up all the cubs, you know what I mean? You've got to figure out the secret code of numbers, and then when you figure it out, you're smarter than everybody else, and you, you figured out the Word of God. No, the Word of God humbles us all. It was foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks were all about their philosophy. And they heard about this story of a man who rose from the dead and brought hope and healing to the world. And the Greeks were like, that sounds dumb. And today, there are many people who would put themselves in that category. Like, that can't be the answer. But the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. You know, this chapter has been interpreted by wise and holy men and women through time. Devoted to the authority of Scripture. Okay? I'm not talking about those who read the Word kind of just like as only a human book. There are, there's that too. But what I'm saying is this word in Mark 13 about the prophecy of Jesus, right, has been read by really wise, really smart, really holy Christians, and they've interpreted it in different ways. So what do we do with that? Many of my heroes in the faith interpret this scripture in a very different way than I do. I was... Um, a missionary with African Inland Mission. And, and back about 100 years ago, the hardcore faith missionaries, people part of these movements like the student volunteer movement, they had, about 100 years ago, they had this, this real sense, and it, 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 it bared out mathematically, and they understood this reality that, listen, our generation can be the generation that preaches the gospel to all the nations. I don't know if you heard it, or if you go back and read in Mark 13, it's very clear, Jesus, one of the things he talks about is that and all the nations will hear the gospel, and then the end will come. And so, a hundred years ago, like, all the nations on earth can hear the gospel if we go out and we preach it. And they would, the same people who started our mission, African Inland Mission, they were people who went to the regular churches. They were a bunch of Presbyterians. They went to the Philadelphia Presbytery and they said, we would like to send some of our youngest, best men and women and start and, and, and have mission stations that cut inland into Africa where there's nothing but disease and where 90% of the people who would go would die because they didn't have the prophylactics. They didn't have the medicine to fight malaria. And the Presbyterians were like, nah, that sounds really dumb. <laughs> like really expensive and really reckless. And so the same people who just are like, all right, we're going to do it. <laughs> Whether you want us to or not, we're the same people that have all these conferences about how the world is going to end in the next 10 years. Let's do this. Jesus is coming. Obsessed with the end of the world. Obsessed with looking at the newspaper and looking at the Bible and saying, all right, how do we discern? Okay, there was an earthquake in Turkey. There was a war in Iran. There was this and that. And so Jesus must be coming soon. So let's go out and preach the gospel. These are my heroes. <laughs> you know? But I don't agree with them. 
last week, I preached about the great commandment. I taught you about the Hebrew words for it, right? The Shema and the Vi Havata, where little Jewish girls and little Jewish boys would memorize and chant this prayer from as old as they could remember. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now we as Christians, we teach our kids the answer to all the stories and to all their needs is in a person. Our Shema is still the Shema, but it is love embodied, love incarnate. The answer, what do we, what do we say the Sunday school answer is? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. So when you're reading the Bible, I don't care if it's Mark 13 or Revelation or Daniel or whatever, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Jesus is the main thing. And, and I've been helped in this message as I was preparing it by a preacher named Alistair Begg. And um, just want to get that there. If you hear him, you'll hear some of the stuff that I'm going to share with you tonight. But listen, he, he helps us and he talks about the two dangerous areas that we get into in interpretation when we look at the, the Word of God. And one of them is theological anarchy. And, and the other end, it's theological tyranny. And, and we get sucked up into one or the other. And like theological anarchy is like, have you ever been to a Bible study and you get together and you read a passage and people just look at each other and somebody says, what do you feel about that? What do you, how do you feel about that? And everybody, and there's like 10 people in the room and there's 10 different ideas <laughs> of what that passage is about. You know, I got this. Uh, this is funny. It's a little bit of my personality. I got this mug a couple years ago. It says, please do not confuse your Google search with my theological degree. <laughs> your deep dive into YouTube and your 30-minute, like I watched Ancient Aliens once on the History Channel, doesn't really match the years that I spent studying the Word of God and the history and the Greek and all of that. And if we, we wanted to have a debate, right, like we could go into deep waters about what these things mean. But, but what, why am I saying this? What I'm saying is we live in a culture where it's like every single opinion is as valid as another. Whether you, because you can just go on the internet and you can just go in the comment section and you can say whatever you want and there's no consequence. And a lot, of the, a lot of the news resources that we get, right, are just, we, we can't tell if anything is backed up by anything. And we get this, this impression that everything is just sort of equally the same, equal depth. Same amount of work went into that. And we get theological anarchy. 
See, I don't know about you, like, I'll pick on my wife. She, every time she gets sick, yeah, I see her back there. She's giving me a side eye. Every time she gets sick, right, it's like WebMD. <laughs> Any of you here like Google doctors? Any of you like a <laughs> couple of hands, right? Like you get sick and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die in a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got like the cold and you're like looking at the symptoms and you start freaking out. And it's like, it's a good thing that we can go to WebMD. Things have been caught in my, like my wife has caught stuff that was life-threatening and the doctors weren't listening. Amen. And, and she kept pushing and it saved her life and our child's life. But here's the thing. There are deep waters you get into where you want like open heart surgery and you're not looking at YouTube and cutting yourself open and trying to do it. Like you want, the, you want the woman or man who has done this year after year after year and spent years training to do it, who is decisive to come in and do that thing for you. And so on the one hand is anarchy. On the other hand is tyranny. I, I remember hearing like five different sermons that asked the question, have you ever heard the shortest verse in the Bible? What is it? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? We got any Bible nerds here? <laughs> yeah, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Um, I've heard like five different sermons on that where the question is asked, you know why Jesus cried? And then they give like five different reasons <laughs> that are completely different than the other. <laughs> he cried because of their unbelief. He cried because he was mad at death itself. He cried, you know what I mean? On and on and on. And there's a difference between the meaning of a passage and the many implications of that passage. But theological tyranny is the other end of the coin where, you know, we bring the plumber to the house and we have no idea how to fix the problem in our house. And the person says, yeah, this is like a $20,000 fix. And you're just like, you have no options. <laughs> There's a difference between believing that the word of God has authority and we want to follow Jesus and the plain things are the main things and we can follow the word of God and get guidance from it and be helped by those who study and devoted their life to teaching and preaching it. And there's a difference between that and some preacher saying, this is the reason this is. This is, it, it's, it's, there's a difference between saying, the word of God has authority over you and me saying, I have authority and my interpretation is ultimate. You, you remember the Bereans? You remember Paul went and preached in Berea? And when he left, these guys looked at what he said and went back to the scriptures to check to see if what Paul said makes sense. They wanted to see, is this true? They wanted to know it for themselves. And Paul didn't answer them and say, what? I'm an apostle. I saw the risen Lord Jesus. I devoted my whole life to this. You don't know nothing. You better listen to me. No. 
Paul praised them for checking what he said. So there's something in the middle between anarchy and you're just settled and content and don't have to learn from nothing, from nobody, and tyranny where you just blindly follow one preacher on TV, one preacher here. Like, I don't care. It can be me. That is tyranny. If you think that there's nothing you have to check, that your conscience just has to die <laughs> and you just have to follow. No, you... you God wants you to use your mind. Amen? Use your conscience. Um, let me tell you a heartbreaking story about theological tyranny, especially as it relates to this text. Back in the day, a, couple, a few years ago, I was working at a church in Camden, and it was mostly a African-American church, young, millennial, full of young people. And there was an older couple who came to church. And they came, and they were in, a, they were in suits. You know what I mean? They were, like, decked out in suits because they were older, and they were really traditional in that way. And we are like, oh, that's awesome that they came. Most, I don't know, like, some people tried to talk to them, but I don't really know where they're from or anything. Anyway... They come the next week, and they're, like, dressed down. And then they come the third week, and now, as a young church, you know, you see this older couple come three weeks in a row, get really excited. <laughs> like, like, I don't understand, but God must have sent them here, because what you got to understand about a church full of just people, like, under 30 is that, like, those churches desperately need some folks who have been Christians for a minute, <laughs> have some maturity in life and wisdom, ha can, can mentor, can encourage, have been in, through some stuff in life and can encourage. And so the, the, the excitement was, man, maybe like they, they even tried really to step into our world, even though that's not their comfort. They dressed down. They've come three weeks in a row. So the pastor took them out to have lunch. And they tried to ask questions. He tried to ask them questions about their kids, about how's your life. And, and they were like, that's none of your business. And they were like, okay, something's going off the rails. <laughs> Something is not right. And it, and, it, and it comes out after a while that this family, this, this, this older couple, they had followed the teachings of a man named Harold Camping who had the, lar like one of the largest, I think, syndicate Christian radio in the world called Family Radio. And he owned it, and um, he used something called numerology. We study numbers uh, in, in the Bible and had all these prophecies. Had, he didn't prophesy, but he said, the word of God is very clear. And at first he said, 1984, the end is coming. And he wrote a book, and it got a lot of people really freaked out. And, um, like, this wasn't just some sideshow person. He built the largest radio network, <laughs> largest Christian radio network in the world. This wasn't just some, you know what I mean, dude on the side. 
And um, when that didn't happen, when Jesus didn't ha- come back in 1984, what he said is, well, I, I make a revision. It was a judgment day, but it was a judgment day against the church. So now, like, if you're going to a church, those churches are all, they've all fallen away. They don't teach the right thing. And so by implication, the idea is, you know what? Spend your energy, spend your money on this one thing that God is using, which is this radio ministry. <laughs> And be disconnected from the church. And thousands and thousands of people did that. And then in 2012, it, this, is, this is it. This is it. The end is coming. And they, they backed up what they were saying. And they just blew all their budget on it with no plan after 2012. And people like this old couple sold all they had and bought an RV and went up and down the country. And then 2012 came by. Jesus didn't come back. And Harold Camping died months later. He was 92 years old. There were teenagers who killed themselves. You know? Um, Our brother David read where Jesus made it so clear. He said, the angels don't know when I'm coming back. He said, I don't know when I'm coming back. You don't know when I'm coming back. And sure enough, Harold Camping don't know, and nobody in this room knows when he's coming back. And in fact, the entire chapter is imperative after imperative to watch out. People are going to come and they're going to say, he's here, he's over there, follow him. They're gonna, and, and, and the whole entire passage is about there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be this and that. And it's so ironic that the very chapter that is devoted to teaching us to be aware of all these people who would come and deceive us is the very chapter that deceivers like to take and take one line and say, look, this is Russia. This is Iran. This is Iraq. It's always something different for every generation. But Jesus says, you don't know. You don't know when I'm coming back. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. We like to stop at that full stop period, but the passage keeps going. Why? Why does he reveal some things to us? Why? If we finish the verse, it says, so that we may follow all the words of his law. Right? So let's attempt to, to answer some of the big questions from this passage. There's really two questions being asked in this passage. Jesus starts in verse 3, and he's at the Mount of Olives, and he's looking over down in Jerusalem, and, and, and he starts talking about the temple. And, and he talks about the temple, and then he switches, and he starts talking about his return. And what a lot of people do is they just mix both of them together. And that is where a lot of problems start to come in. But Jesus doesn't make it very difficult for us to understand. 
this is verses 3 to 35. He describes all of this horrible situation. He describes, he says, young nursing mothers, it's going to be a bad day. When, when you see the sky turn black, like run for the hills. Run for the hills. There's going to be destruction. He, he uses this word, this, um, this phrase, the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, it's time to get out of the city. Now, Daniel 9 and chapter 9 and chapter 11 talk about the abomination of desolation. They prophesy about it. And then we read in the books 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which, which are not in the Bible. And the reason they're not in our Bible is because the Jews had a Bible which they called the, the, the inspired word, the oracles of God. And, you know, we take that as the scriptures. And then there's a bunch of other books in between, a whole bunch of other books that are really helpful and fill in the blanks, but are just not described by the Jews as the oracles of God. They're not part of the Torah, right? They're not part of the scriptures. Um, and, you know, there are other Christian churches that have all the books that we would have, that all the Protestant church would have, but then they'd have all types of other lists. So several different lists from the Orthodox Church with all types of books, like some are here, some are there, Catholic Church. Uh, so I, I come up Catholic, right? That was one of my big questions as a new Christian. Like, how do I know why certain books are the Bible or not? Like, I love, I, like, I hear about Jesus. I'm drawn to him. I believe he's true. Help me out with this, you know? And that's a conversation that I can have with you. That's like a whole series of sermons, but we read in the books, the, the books of the Maccabees, we, we learn about this family that resisted this guy named Epiphanes Antiochus. And what this guy did, he was one of the, one of the Greek emperors. What he did is he Zeus, their Greek god, an idol to Zeus, he put it right in the temple of the Hebrews. And then he took a pig. And if you are Jewish, or if you study the word of God, you know that this is like the lowest blow <laughs> that you could do. They took a pig and they sacrificed a pig on the altar. And they forbade the Jews from worshiping Yahweh. They forbade the Jews. For, they had to worship Zeus. They had to worship their gods. And there was this one family that resisted. And one of the, the biggest holidays celebrated by Jews today is Hanukkah, right? And Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. You know, you see in John 8, he goes to the Festival of Lights, and then he says some stuff. That's Hanukkah, and they were celebrating it. And this, all these events that happened, this wasn't like ancient history to them. This was like when Jesus was talking about the abomination of desolation, he's talking about an, a historic event that happened to their great-grandparents. It was only like 130 years before he was talking. This happened. 
And so he's saying something that they all knew was fulfilled, and he's calling them to this historic event, and he's saying there is going to be an ultimate abomination of desolation, just like when the evil Antiochus slayed the pigs on the altar. What's going to happen is that he is looking down at the hill where the temple is, and he's describing how the temple would be destroyed. Which happened. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You're going to see this. This is going to happen in your generation. And he said that in the 30s. And this happened in the 70s. Less than 40 years after he said this, the Romans would come in and destroy the temple. And one of the reasons that I am saying, listen, there's all types of historic, there's all types of biblical, and I said there are wise, holy, intelligent men who read this passage differently. But one of the reasons that I would submit to you, you've got to make up your own mind about this stuff, is that Jesus wouldn't have told them to run away if he was talking about this tribulation that would happen before he came back. Because when Jesus comes back, believers have no reason to run. And those who've rejected God have nowhere to run. Jesus was a good shepherd. And he's telling them about something that was going to happen in their lifetime. And he's emphatic that it was going to happen in their lifetime. <laughs> And some people have used that to disprove the, the Bible and say this is a contradiction. He said he would come back and that he would come back in their lifetime and he never did. That's not what he said. Is <laughs> we combine the whole chapter together and think it's one prophecy. Jesus was a good shepherd then and he's a good shepherd now. Don't be distracted. He's calling you. Don't be misled. He will come back again. You see in the end of that passage that he's coming down with the angels. Like it won't be something that you have to decode from the newspaper. Because the Bible, where it's very plain about these things, is where we interpret these things where they're less plain. And the scripture is very clear. When he comes, no one is going to be like, well, did he come? You missed it. It was this Russian guy. I, I had a guy across the street tell me a month ago that he was the morning star in the Bible. So what are we called to do? He, his commands are clear in this chapter. He repeatedly says... Let no one lead you astray. He says, don't go after the one who says, here I am, or there he is. And it's, 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 he constantly says, be on guard. Don't believe it when this person comes, that person comes. Every single cult has started off with this move. Every single cult. Every single cult. Jehovah Witnesses. They had a date. Everybody got ready. They all gathered in Brooklyn. Didn't happen. 
Well, what happened was, it's like when you get caught cheating. Well, what had happened was, and you start changing the story around, it was a, you know, spiritual judgment. And now we look at the revelation and we see the, the 104, the, the four. 144,000, they were saved, and now, it's like all this on and on and on, and you see that in Mormonism, you see that in all of these outcrops, all of these outcrops over the years that lead to our confusion and say, Jesus wasn't enough. Here's some more stuff. Jesus is a side note, and yet... The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So whether you agree with every line that I am saying about this, this chapter, or whether you disagree, you, I hope you agree with me here. Jesus is the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. And, and, and this is why we love creeds and we, we say the creeds, right? And we are not coming up on our own, detached from history, reading the Bible all by ourselves. And what do we read in the creed? We read that he sits, Jesus, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We say, I believe in the judgment. Theological anarchy opens up sheep to theological tyranny. How do you keep from being led astray? There are two ways to gutter the ball. You ever, you ever go bowling? You know, when you don't go bowling for a really long time, sometimes you, you're like, wow. It was like I was aiming for the gutter. Like, and you got to, like, recalibrate, you know what I'm saying? So you get down the middle a little bit. Now, I have no game. Like, I have no spinning ball game. Like, my game is just straight down the middle like a bullet. And it works sometimes, <laughs> you know. But um, here's what you do to not go gutter it on the left or the right, you know. If you want to land in the left gutter, you read the Bible by yourself only. You don't need a church. You don't need anybody. I, I recently heard someone's friend was reading the scriptures, and they came upon a truth, and they were excited about it, that God calls people, and when he calls them, like, you can't resist his grace. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. And then they took it a step further. We're like, kind of thinking then that every single soul will be saved at the end. But I'm only a few books into the Bible. And I'm going to read the whole thing. And then after I read the Bible, I'm going to make a decision <laughs> about what I think about that teaching. It's like going on YouTube, looking up open heart surgery, and trying it out for the first time on yourself. Like I alone, outside of any tradition, outside of the voices of 2,000 years of wisdom, I am going to decide for myself what I believe and what I don't believe. There's not, we say that's humil humility, don't we? Like we act like that's like I'm spiritual, not religious. I pick and choose some good things. I believe in demons. I believe in energy and vibes and vibrations in the universe and positive. I believe in this. Maybe God, Jesus was a good man, this and that. And the reality is, is that when we just pick and pull 
all this random stuff and put it together, we're not being humble. We're acting like we have the capacity outside of any type of tradition, outside of any type of input from anybody else to determine ultimate reality. It's not humility. Like my brother said, it's like the ultimate hubris. It's, it's ultimate pride. You know, you can't decide oh, like a doctrine. You read the word once. So that's one extreme, one way to gutter it. The other way to gutter it is to just follow what you've been told since you grew up and not study it for yourself. Do you see the difference? Those, they sound like two opposite things, but they're somewhere in the middle. Like, you should read the Bible for you, and you should know what it says, and you should spend a lifetime proving what the Scriptures say. You should be seeking, and you should be allowing certain things to be unanswered. You should be allowing, like, I don't understand this. This is what the church says. I don't know if I agree with that, but I'm going to live in the tension. It's okay. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to know all the answers. Yesterday, we had a group of people that went to this, this training by Diane Langberg. And she talked about, you know, if, if you want to keep from, from being abused by pastors, she said, study the Bible for yourself. She said, you go to a car mechanic, right? And they can say, like, yeah, the thingamajig is broken with the gearinator, and you owe me a thousand bucks. And you just are like, well, if I want my car to run, I got to give it to you. And she's saying, Know the word of God for yourself. But here's the thing. There are two ways to go down this gutter, right? Like you're not, not every person in this room is going to be a mechanic. Not every person in this room can be a plumber. Not every person in this room can master every single thing. And you certainly, not every person can master the word of God, right? You spend your life humbly seeking to understand it. Don't allow just the preacher's word to be your word. Test it for yourself. But don't read the word in isolation. See, you got to be in the middle there. You, you got to be in the middle there. And Facebook memes is not research. You know, ancient, alien, 30-minute shows on the History Channel is not research. Your five-hour deep dive into podcasts and YouTube is not research. Get a Bible out and read it. Get some tools. You want to learn some Hebrew and Greek. Get some historic commentaries. Get some real deep research, okay? So brothers and sisters, Jesus is a good shepherd, and he calls us to be on guard, to know his word for a lifetime. You know, trust pastors and trust preachers and teachers that bear good fruit in their lives. Don't be mesmerized by bells and whistles. Look for conversions. Look for people being raised up as leaders. Don't cast your pearls before pigs that are going to trample over you. Don't listen to every voice. Don't allow yourself to be eaten by wolves. To the one who has ears, there are going to be many voices in your life, in the church and outside the church, pulling you on Netflix, on social media, on cable, on the radio. 
many voices and in the church. Listen for the voice calling out in this crazy wilderness. Listen to the voice of the Lord who loves you, who laid down his life for you. He ends this chapter by saying, it's like the person who leaves their house in the charge of their servants, right? And he wants, you, he wants us to be good stewards. <laughs> the answer isn't, you know, let's just think about how Jesus is coming tomorrow and freak out. No, the answer is save money, work hard, get married, plan for the future, be a blessing that transforms lives around you. You don't know when he's coming. The angels don't know when he's coming. <laughs> Jesus himself says he doesn't know when he's coming. So let's be faithful and know he is coming. He is coming.